Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Tim Lynch. I'm the director of Cato's project on criminal justice. Today we want to take a closer look at these stand your ground laws that have uh, received so much scrutiny since the shooting death of Trayvon Martin in uh, late February. Uh, you may have seen that last week the governor of Florida, Rick Scott, uh, announced the formation of a task force in that state that's going to re-examine not only the stand your ground law, but uh, many of the other gun laws uh, on the books in that state. So I think that this event could not be more timely. Before I introduce our first speaker, I do want to take just three or four minutes to lay something of a foundation for our discussion this afternoon. To put the controversy over the stand your ground laws into some perspective, I think uh, it's necessary that we first take a look at another law that Florida enacted in 1987. And that was their law regarding concealed carry permits. 25 years ago, it was illegal in many states for ordinary citizens to carry guns outside of the home if they did not have a permit. At that time, the permit systems were a discretionary matter with the police. If you couldn't persuade the local police department that you needed a gun for purposes of self-defense, uh, that was the end of the matter. There was really no practical appeal from that denial. But Florida adopted a new law that is commonly referred to as shall issue. And the shall issue laws brought some dramatic changes to the law and, as a practical matter, to the number of people who were leaving their homes with firearms. Under a shall issue system, if any citizen can meet certain objective criteria, such as like you're more than, uh, older than 18 years of age, uh, you pass a criminal background check, you pass a gun safety course, you don't have a history of alcohol or drug abuse uh, problems. If you meet these objective criteria, then the concealed carry permit shall issue to that person. That's why it, it has that name. Critics of the shall issue laws said that crime would spike and we would soon see people shooting at one another over petty disputes and arguments. But that did not happen. Crime did not go up. It actually went down. And criminologists to this day argue among themselves as to how much of the decrease in crime can be attributed to these uh, shall issue laws. Florida has issued, uh, according to my research, more than 2 million concealed carry permits since 1987. And less than 1% of those uh, permit holders have had uh, their permits revoked because of misconduct uh, by the permit holder. More than 30 states have followed Florida and adopted shall issue permit systems. And so there are now about approximately 10 million people in the United States who have concealed carry permits. Now, Florida's stand your ground law came along in 2005. And I know our panelists are going to get into a little bit more detail, but the law basically did two things. First, it says that there's no duty to retreat in the home invasion situation or in situations where a person comes under a criminal attack in a public place. The second thing the law does. <laughs> Never let your girlfriend program your ring. <laughs> you know, I was going to get to that in about two more minutes to ask people to turn off their cell phones, but here we go. That's what happens with a little bit of uh, delay. Uh, the second thing that the stand your ground laws do is they provide for immunity from criminal and civil liability for persons who are covered by the law. And about 24 states have followed Florida and enacted similar provisions. In some jurisdictions, it's called the Castle Doctrine. 
in other jurisdictions that stand your, stand your ground. Now, some critics of the stand your ground law, uh, you may have seen this in the papers recently, uh, they call it the, the shoot first, ask questions later policy. Some police officials have criticized the stand your ground as being misguided and dangerous. They point to the Trayvon Martin shooting and say that the stand your ground law has encouraged vigilantes to profile African-American men, and they point to an increase in justifiable homicides to show that stand your ground laws have led to problems and unintended consequences. The defenders of stand your ground say that the, uh, that law does not apply to the Trayvon Martin case and that the law protects innocent gun owners from overzealous prosecutors and ruinous civil litigation. So against that background, let's turn now to our panel of experts and see what they have to say. The format's going to be straightforward. I've asked each of our panelists to prepare a 15 to 20 minute presentation. Uh, I'm going to introduce each of them in turn. And we're going to have a, then a very brief second round of three minutes apiece and give them an opportunity to respond to any point that's been raised. We're then going to take your questions before we adjourn for a reception in the Cato Winter Garden. Our first speaker today is Mr. Clayton Kramer. Uh, Mr. Kramer is a historian, and he has written several books on the right to keep and bear arms. His books and law review articles have been cited by the U U.S. Supreme Court and several other courts uh, around the country. Mr. Kramer recently co-authored this Cato paper, which we titled Tough Targets. I hope you picked one up outside. Uh, this paper explores the manner and circumstances in which civilians use guns uh, against criminals in self-defense. I think one of the most important points made in that paper was that news organizations tend to report on the incidents where crimes are used in criminal incidents, but they usually do not report the instances where guns are used to stop criminal attacks. And that's because most often the gun is never fired. And from the standpoint of a, a news editor or a news producer, when that type of situation happens, uh, let's say a criminal just runs away because he finds out that the his intended burglary uh, victim has a gun and he runs away from the scene, no shots fired, no injuries, no suspect in custody. So from the standpoint of a news organization, they just don't have much to write about, so it's not reported. And yet it's been estimated that these types of incidents, stopping crimes, uh, happen hundreds of thousands of times a, a year in the United States. But again, we just don't tend to hear about them. I should also mention that Mr. Kramer was uh, instrumental in exposing the work of a disgraced academic by the name of Michael Belil. Some of you might recall that Mr. Belil was the history professor from Emory University who won several awards for his 2000 book called Arming America. At the time, it was a very controversial and bold thesis where he said that actually gun ownership in America was quite rare up until the time of the Civil War. Mr. Kramer came forward to challenge many of the claims made in that book, and it, as the weeks and months and years uh, passed, it turned into an academic scandal because the author was not able to support his claims and sources. So his awards were rescinded, his publisher dropped him, and he lost his position at Emory University. So that's one thing that uh, you see Mr. Kramer's name come up in the news uh, as regarding to that incident. Mr. Kramer teaches history at the College of Western Idaho, but he said that's only his part-time job, the job that he loves. The job that really pays the bills is the one in which uh, he writes computer software for the state of Illinois. Please welcome Clayton Kramer. Idaho. Oh, sorry. Idaho. Uh, 
Uh, I should mention also that I've had some books published in areas besides gun rights, uh, books on black history as well. That was one of my other specialties in grad school. Uh, well, my presentation today, uh, of course, is concerning stand-your-ground laws and why they represent a, um, a delicate balance of competing interests for justice. And first of all, oh, how does this mouse work? Oh, there it is. First of all, let me explain, castle doctrine and stand-your-ground laws are actually a lot more closely related than many people realize. Both of them create a legal presumption in favor of a person who's using deadly force. Uh, both substantially reduce prosecutorial discretion in deciding whether to bring a criminal charge. And both have been growing over the last 35 years for a variety of reasons, both actions of state legislatures and also actions of the courts themselves. Um, Castle Doctrine creates a presumption that if a stranger forces entry into your home, that they intend to kill or cause great bodily injury. And uh, to my knowledge, in every American state, that is the legal requirement for justifiable homicide, that you have reason to fear being murdered or suffering great bodily injury. So these laws mean that a resident who uses deadly force against a stranger who forces entry starts out with a very strong legal advantage. A prosecutor can still pursue a criminal charge against the person who shoots an intruder, but the deck is now stacked against the prosecutor who has to prove that the shooter knew that the intruder meant him no harm. Uh, another way of looking at it is that Castle Doctrine stacks the deck in favor of a person who was minding his own business when a stranger forced entry. Now, closely related to stand-your-ground laws, which have at their core the idea that you have no obligation to retreat from an attacker uh, in your home before using deadly force, is this idea of stand your ground, that even outside your home, that you should not have an obligation to go ahead and retreat. And this term, stand your ground, comes from a U.S. Supreme Court decision, Beard versus U.S., 1895, uh, which held uh, that a person was not required to retreat before using deadly force. Uh, of course, this assumes that you're not the aggressor, that you were minding your own business. And, of course, it also assumes you have a right to be where you were, were when you were attacked, that, uh, you know, if, obviously if you were trespassing or in some other way breaking the law at the time that uh, you were attacked, you would not be in anywhere near the same situation. Where does this notion of a duty to retreat come from? At common law, you were only allowed to use deadly force, in the word of Blackstone's commentaries, for the prevention of any forcible and atrocious crime. Uh, crimes like robbery, murder, rape, uh, breaking into a house at night, uh, these were the cases where deadly force was allowed uh, and was recognized as being completely acceptable. But there are circumstances that were a bit less clear, that the common law did not handle very well. What if uh, a stranger walked up to you on the street and uh, punched you in the nose and started beating on you? Uh, what if several strangers uh, attacked you or surrounded you and started menacing you? Uh, until 1532, uh, if you drew your knife or your sword and killed them, or just a lucky punch against an attacker caused that person's death, uh, this was technically a crime. Uh, your property would be confiscated, and you might well be convicted of manslaughter and punished by branding in the hand. Now, these circumstances were actually pretty common, these sudden uh, brawls and attacks. Uh, in fact, uh, medieval and Renaissance England was actually uh, worse than Detroit today in terms of the levels of violence. Uh, so your only hope if you ended up killing someone under these conditions was to beg the king for a pardon. And if you had good reason for what you had done, and uh, of course you got a lawyer to represent your case before the uh, courts of chancery, uh, you could get that pardon, but uh, your property's gone. 
obviously unjust. And so what happens is that, and also juries are refusing to convict, so Parliament passes a law in 1532 that uh, adds to the category of excusable homicide uh, what they called homicide se defendendo, which is one of those horrible Latin phrases. Uh, and this was the situation where you were attacked in the course of a sudden brawl or quarrel, and you ended up killing your attacker. Now, defense was not available if you had a safe or convenient way to um, back away from the, uh, the attack. Uh, you could not use this defense if you initiated the confrontation, uh, or if you had a chance to stop fighting and uh, could have backed away but uh, chose not to. So the goal here is to discourage killing. Now, this was an affirmative defense, meaning that burden of proof was on the person who was using the defense. Uh, you know, the prosecutor didn't have to prove uh, anything here. You, as a, uh, the person making this defense, had to prove that you had you know, reason to be concerned. Now, this is a little bit at variance with our laws today. And there are people who say the American tradition of violence plays a part in this. This uh, 1850s illustration from Harper's uh, captures well the sort of pointless and stupid brawling that was in some parts of the United States, especially in the, uh, the, the, the South, a big part of the culture. Uh, you've probably never seen a roast pig used as a uh, weapon before, have you? The historian Richard Maxwell Brown wrote a book some years ago called No Duty to Retreat, in which he made the claim that uh, this violence that was common in American society uh, and a, a general focus on manliness uh, had caused our courts to abandon this duty to retreat contained in the 1532 law. Uh, and there's some debate about whether he actually had this correct or not. Uh, even today, English law is not really consistently following a duty to retreat. There's a case I found called uh, Rex v. Byrd uh, from 1985, where the English uh, Court of Appeals uh, ruled that a woman who took out an attacker's eye with a shot glass uh, you know, was not obligated to retreat before using that level of force. And she had actually provoked the attack. It was an ex-boyfriend. They met at a party. She poured a drink over him. He shoved her into the wall. She had a glass and <laughs> took out his eye. So even English law is, is not completely consistent on this. So perhaps this isn't something that we actually uh, innovated on the English law. Now, even states that you might think of as NRA-occupied territories uh, have, at least in some places, abandoned this duty to retreat. Um, California Penal Code Section 195 here, um, you can see it on the screen, uh, defines excusable homicide in terms that are quite similar to that 1532 statute by the English Parliament. Uh, but there's one significant difference, and that is no duty to retreat, and the uh, courts in California, uh, starting as far back as 1895 with people v. Hecker, uh, have recognized that there was a right to stand your ground. Uh, and uh, this seems to be the case in a majority of states, uh, uh, that there is some recognition that at least under some conditions, there is no duty to retreat to enjoy the excusable homicide statute. Uh, even states that recognize a duty to retreat in a public place uh, often do not require this in your own home, uh, even when the attacker is someone else who lives in the same house. And that actually leads to an interesting discovery. Um, some of what has driven this abandonment of the duty to retreat, uh, and abandonment even by the courts, even without legislative action, uh, has been domestic violence situations. Uh, there's a number of state Supreme Courts that have recognized that there is no duty, duty to retreat before using deadly force in your own home, uh, even when the attacker is not uh, a stranger. Uh, I've given you a list of a few representative examples. 
uh, State v. Livesey from my state of Idaho, not Illinois, uh, involved a woman who uh, had shot an abusive husband. He had been locked up overnight in the county jail. He came back in the morning, uh, attitude not improved. Um, uh, she fired one shot as a warning to let him know uh, to back off uh, because he was threatening her at this point. Uh, he was not good at taking subtle hints like that, and he uh, shoved her into the wall. She shot him either by accident or as a result of, uh, of intent, um, somewhat unclear. Uh, and uh, at trial, uh, the instructions given to the jury were that she had a duty to retreat even out of her own home rather than use deadly force against this uh, drunken brute. And the state Supreme Court ended up saying, uh, no, that's not right. And so there's been a number of other states that have recognized that uh, you know, there's no duty to retreat out of your house. Now, I mentioned that Castle Doctrine and Stand Your Ground laws are closely related, and sometimes they're so hopelessly intermingled that I have a hard time seeing them as completely separate. Um, because of the controversy concerning Trayvon Martin's death, uh, and Florida's law has become something of a model for other states, um, I'm going to go ahead and tend to focus on that. First of all, the Stand Your Ground law in Florida is primarily a castle doctrine law. Most of the text is about protecting your ability to uh, defend your dwelling, residence, or vehicle from an attack. Uh, use of force against trespassers is allowed, but not deadly force. And it's interesting, the first use of Florida's Stand Your Ground law that I saw when, well, for example, the data that we put together for this report here, uh, involved a, a woman named Marilyn Carraway. She shot her ex-boyfriend when he forced his way into the screened-in porch part of her, of her home. There's only a small part of Florida's stand-your-ground law that protects the right to use deadly force in other places. And even then, the use of deadly force is authorized only, and you'll notice the language here, um, reasonably necessary to prevent death or great bodily harm to himself or herself or another or to prevent the commission of a forcible felony. So I'm having a little trouble seeing this as a really radical change in terms of when it authorizes the use of deadly force. Now, you're probably wondering, if this is not such a radical change, why is it even necessary? In an ideal world, it wouldn't be necessary. Uh, the problem here, unfortunately, is prosecutors have an enormous discretion in deciding whether to pursue criminal charges. And obviously, in a legitimate case of self-defense, you would expect a prosecutor to not go ahead and file charges. Uh, even if there is some ambiguity, you know, you're going to tend to give the benefit of the doubt if you believe this person probably went ahead and was engaged in a lawful self-defense. The problem is prosecutors sometimes abuse their discretion. I hope that doesn't surprise anyone. Sometimes they're currying favor with voters, um, or at least some voters. As we saw with the uh, Duke Lacrosse rape case uh, a couple of years back, uh, prosecutors are not above violating the law in order to get votes. Um, the district attorney, Mike Nifong, was uh, in the middle of a uh, primary, and he needed uh, a lot of votes that he otherwise might not have gotten. Uh, eventually, you recall, he was disbarred for dishonesty, fraud, deceit, and misrepresentation, and even served, I think, one day in jail. Sometimes prosecutors have such a fierce opposition to gun ownership that they pursue criminal charges simply because the victim used a gun. Or perhaps a prosecutor wants to be seen as tough on crime. Now, some of the early adopters of these sort of laws did so because of prosecutorial abuse of discretion. For example, California's uh, Home Protection Bill of Rights, uh, which is a castle doctrine law, uh, this passed a democratically controlled legislature in 1984 by huge majorities in both houses. Uh, in the state senate, uh, my state senator was one of only three out of 40 to vote against it. Uh, and uh, 
no one was going to mistake California's legislature back then for NRA puppets or even neutral on gun ownership. So what provoked it? What got them to pass this bill so overwhelmingly? Uh, my recollection of newspaper coverage at the time was that the LA County DA went ahead and prosecuted a woman who had shot a guy who had forced entry into her home. Uh, now, he didn't get very far on that, but of course it was expensive. I talked to the author of the bill a few days ago, and he, he remembers that there were a number of such incidents that had come up, and this is why the legislature was so willing to go ahead and change the, um, uh, you know, the, the equation, to go ahead and change the balance on this to create this, uh, this uh, presumption in favor of the, the homeowner. Now, the author of Florida Stand Your Ground Law says that uh, the particular event that provoked it was a man shot an intruder who had forced entry into his motorhome. He was living in a, a motorhome on his property after, you know, Florida has these hurricanes come through every few days and destroy everything. It had destroyed his home, and uh, he was living in this motorhome and shot the guy that forced entry. And it took many months for the prosecutor to decide, you know, well, I'm not going to pursue this. Um, and, of course, in the meantime, uh, remember, the, the cost of defending yourself from prosecution will bankrupt you if nothing else does. What effects have these laws had on crime rates? Well, uh, the Stand Your Ground laws are really a little too recent to ha have any long-term longitudinal effect studies, but uh, there is a little bit of work done on the effects of Castle Law. Um, Dr. Lott's uh, More Guns, Less Crime mentions uh, statistically significant reductions in the rates for a number of the, uh, the common crimes like murder, rape, robbery, and aggravated assault. Um, although he's also careful to emphasize that the number of years and the number of states is so small that you know you might want to not, might not want to draw too much um, meaning from this. Now, the April seventh uh, Washington Post reported that after Florida adopted their stand your ground law, civilian justifiable homicides tripled. Now, at this point, we're all supposed to go gasp. Uh, but what? You know, and, and it was apparently a significant increase from twelve per year average to thirty six per year average. But the same article also mentioned that police justifiable homicides also tripled over that same period of time. And I don't really see how the stand your ground law would have affected uh, police justifiable homicides. Uh, perhaps, in fact, the justifiable homicides increased because of an increase in aggressive uh, criminal behavior. Uh, now, there's one rather interesting quirk about the way the justifiable homicide data is gathered. Uh, it turns out that the FBI, who gathers this data from every state, um, they exclude the excusable homicides, and they only include justifiable homicides based on the initial reports by the police. Uh, if there's a later investigation by the police, by the prosecutor, by grand jury, or at trial, and that killing is ruled justifiable or excusable, the FBI's data does not get updated. And it's very likely, since the same people in Florida that gather this data for the FBI are what Washington Post is using, it's very likely that that data is not being updated either. So it may be, maybe that not that there's actually been an increase in justifiable homicide, maybe it's just being reported um, much more early in the process as justifiable than it did before. Now, in 1989, Time Magazine produced what I call a very useful piece of propaganda. And it was useful because of the amount of actual raw data that it contained. Uh, they devoted most of the magazine one week to what they called death by gun. As best they could, they got information on every person killed with a gun in the United States during one week. Um, 464 deaths, 199 criminal homicides, 13 justifiable or excusable by police, 14 justifiable or excusable by civilians. But what happened when they went back a year later? 
They did a follow-up, and they discovered that 14 of those cases initially reported as criminal homicides were now actually justifiable homicides. Uh, so at least a doubling of the justifiable homicide right, rate as all these cases actually worked their way through the criminal justice system. Uh, and there were still some of these criminal homicides that have not gone to trial, so that might, might continue to change. Uh, criminologist Gary Kleck at about the same time was collecting studies that demonstrate that uh, this is probably on the low side. Uh, there are an awful lot of cases where women kill intimate partners uh, and they're often charged with a crime, manslaughter for example, uh, and are later found innocent. Um, so it, you know, these are complicated situations and I'm not surprised that police often initially charge these as crimes even though later investigation concludes Yes, this woman had a reason, sometimes this man had a reason to go ahead and use deadly force. So, did the justifiable homicide rate actually triple? Or was it just crimes that otherwise would have been reported as murder or manslaughter and then later figured out were more likely to be reported as justifiable homicide at the very beginning? I don't know for sure, but I do think it's at least a plausible explanation. Now, Stand your ground laws move the balance point of the criminal justice system. There are prosecutors who argue that these laws make it too hard to prosecute criminals who shoot people or kill them in general. Uh, the claim is that criminals use these presumptions that are being built into these stand your ground laws to get away, literally, with murder. And I don't doubt that this does on occasion happen. Uh, a lot of violent crime, remember, involves criminals killing other criminals. Uh, people that are arrested for murder usually have very long rap sheets. Um, and victims often have disproportionately long rap sheets as well. Sometimes they're completely innocent people, but sometimes they're you know, bad people killing bad people. Uh, on the plus side, it makes it harder for prosecutors to use the enormous powers that their position includes to abuse those who are engaged in lawful self-defense. And I think what we really have here is a question of balancing the interests of justice. Uh, at what point does a law give too much benefit of the doubt to a person engaged in self-defense? Uh, in states that have very little violent crime, such as where I live in Idaho, uh, a stand-your-ground law is probably unnecessary and could even be harmful for the reasons that critics give. In states that have severe violent crime problems, where people have good reason to fear being attacked on the street, stand-your-ground laws may make very good sense indeed. Now, I cringe at the abstract idea of a stand-your-ground law because it will encourage people to use deadly force. Uh, the world's full of stupid, teenaged punks. I hope this is not a surprise to anyone here. They get mouthy. They get aggressive. They rely on intimidation when they aren't actually being violent. Some of them, a few days in jail, a fine, might be enough to make them stop being punks. At least we can hope that. And they aren't going to get that chance if they attack someone on the street who ends up killing them. But when I look at Florida's stand-your-ground law, it doesn't worry me all that much. It seems pretty carefully drafted. Outside of your home, where does it apply? You must be in a place you have a right to be. You cannot be engaged in an unlawful activity. So if you're a drug dealer, you, know, you don't get the benefit of it. You are allowed to meet force with force, so roughly equivalent to what's being used against you. Someone pushes you, you can push them back. Someone pushes you, you don't shoot them. You are allowed uh, to use deadly force under a rather limited set of conditions. You have to reasonably believe uh, reason to prevent death or great bodily injury to himself or herself or prevent the commission of a forcible felony. 
Um, you do not get the benefit of this law if you are in the process of committing a forcible felony or trying to escape after doing so. And if you initiate the confrontation that leads to someone's death, you don't get the benefit of the law under these set of conditions. Um, you can use it if you believe you're in imminent danger of death or great bodily harm, and you've exhausted every reasonable means to escape such danger, or you have withdrawn from physical contact and vindicated you want to stop the fight. So if you started the fight, a lot of limitations on, on, on your ability to use deadly force. So my argument is there may well be flaws in the standard ground law that Florida has and that other states have as well. But I'm not seeing any clear evidence that this is a uh, severe problem. I'm not seeing any evidence that this is a systemic problem. There may well be cases that require some adjustments to the law. I do not see that the core of the law is fundamentally at, uh, at flaw here. Thank you. Thanks, Clayton. Our, our second speaker today is a well-known authority on firearms, police work, and the rules pertaining to self-defense and the use of deadly force. For 37 years, he served as a part-time sworn officer uh, in New Hampshire, where he is currently serving as a captain. He also serves as a police prosecutor in that state, and in that capacity, he teaches attorneys in their continuing legal education. Uh, they earn credits on topics related to the use of force and justifiable homicide. Over the course of his career, he has trained thousands of police officers and civilians in weapons tactics and survival techniques. He's a prolific author. Uh, he's written thousands of columns over the past 30 years in periodicals such as The American Handgunner and Guns Magazine. He's also written many books. The most relevant one uh, to this forum, I think, is his 1979 classic and bestseller, In the Gravest Extreme, which uh, was about the use of guns uh, for self-defense, widely endorsed by police officers, lawyers, and even judges. When he's not training others or writing articles, chances are he's uh, out on the range competing somewhere. He is a champion pistol shooter, winning competitions all around the country. I should also mention that he has himself been involved in more than 20 armed encounters over the course of his career. With that background, I don't think you'll be surprised to learn that he is one of the most sought after experts uh, to come to trials to testify on uh, shoot and don't shoot situations, uh, self-defense cases, and, and the use of uh, firearms uh, in cases involving police officers and civilians. Please welcome Masada Yu. Thank you, Tim. Am I audible to everyone? I'd like to thank Clayton Kramer for an absolutely outstanding historical perspective on this concept. As he pointed out, the Castle Law and or the Castle Doctrine and the Stand Your Ground Laws are very similar, but they're subtly different. There's been a lot of confusion over the, the two in the last few years as these laws have spread. And that is magnified to the power of 10 in the last two months after the currently ongoing controversial shooting in Sanford, Florida. Perhaps the reason is the law being debated there. Uh, you want to Google uh, Florida Statute 776.013. As written, actually encompasses three different concepts. Certainly the Castle Doctrine. Uh, as Clayton explained, going back to the English common law, the citizens' home is their castle. Attack there, they need not retreat before using appropriate force to repel the attacker. The stand-your-ground law 
is distinctly different because that covers the individual if they're assaulted in a public place. Some of the confusion has come from the fact that even some of the sponsors felt since now we'll be able to do on the street what we could do in, in the home, we used the term for it that we used in the home, castle doctrine. Muddying the waters further, that particular statute also encompasses a presumption of reasonableness. Now, just as we all have a presumption of innocence, that is, we're innocent until proven guilty, that particular law is written, says the person who makes a claim of self-defense, if they can prove it as a reasonable claim of self-defense, if they can show to a preponderance of evidence standard that is more likely than not that they're telling the truth that it was self-defense, the case should be dismissed. This has created a great deal of ire and a, a great deal of controversy. I've heard the argument that, well, you, sh you shouldn't allow this because all the bad guys will say they shot their victims in self-defense and get off. Ladies and gentlemen, the bad guys have been using that excuse as long as there have been bad guys. I shot him in self-defense. Some other dude done it. I don't know a thing about it. I didn't beat him, and I'll never beat him again if you let me go. Basically, through all that time, skilled investigators and skilled prosecutors like the man at my left have torn those BS arguments apart and won the convictions as they should. What the Stand Your Ground law does is keep the innocent citizen who's telling the truth that they did shoot in self-defense from going through the kind of legal nightmare that Clayton Kramer just described to you. I've been an expert witness for the courts in shooting cases and uh, weapons cases since the year 1979. I can point to people who, want, by the time they were finally acquitted, had paid six figures in legal fees. People who've lost their jobs, and we'll talk in a, in a minute more, it, it goes beyond the financial. You'll hear the argument, well, we shouldn't allow stand your ground because it makes the police's job more difficult and it makes the prosecutors more difficult. I submit to you that that is not true. The burden that the prosecution has is to show that you are guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, a likelihood in the high 90th percentile. For you to get off on presumption of reasonableness, you have to show to a greater than the not certainty level, preponderance of evidence, 51%, 50.1%, whatever the given law professor may quantify it as, that you did the right thing. Do the math. If you have been able to convince a judge at hearing that it's more than 50% likely you're telling the truth and you acted in lawful, justified self-defense. How on earth is any pro honest prosecutor who ever lived going to turn that around in a convincing, the, the same impartial ju judge or jury that, nah, he's 98% likely that he did wrong instead of right? In essence, it's not going to change anything. If anything, it may literally be more cost-effective and more efficient as, as well as simply more just for the legal system. If within a matter of weeks after charging, a hearing determines that, yep, more likely than not, this guy really did shoot in self-defense and that's what the evidence shows, it's done. We preserved our fiduciary duty to the taxpayers not to squander their money in a trial that could last for weeks or even months in a world where it costs thousands of dollars a day to keep that courtroom open, 
where it costs hundreds of dollars an hour for you, the defendant, to pay for your defense attorney. We hear people say, well, this law says you, you can shoot anybody if you feel the least bit scared of them. Anyone who tells you that has tell you, told you they never read the law. Google that statute. Look in any of the states, and these are the majority of the states, as Clayton told you, that have the stand-your-ground principle. It doesn't say you can shoot because you're scared, because you're nervous, because you had mere suspicion. You'll have to show that your action was reasonable. Now, that, uh, what you want to do in the Florida statute, the Florida statute says reasonable. It doesn't show you how to find reasonable. So you track, uh, do a Google search for the Florida jury instructions, and you'll find out that just like every other jurisdiction in the country, they use another English common law doctrine called the doctrine of the reasonable person. That's essentially a three-pronged test. The, the trier of the facts must ask themselves, what would a reasonable and prudent person have done in the exact same situation as this defendant, knowing what this defendant knew under the circumstances. So if anyone tells you, gee, if somebody, this law says, if somebody looks at you cross-eyed, you can shoot them, they're telling you they never read the law. They're telling you they don't understand the concept. Basically, this has not been a huge sea change, uh, as Clayton explained. Even in the states that still have the so-called retreat requirement, again, we need to read the fine print. Nowhere in this country has retreat ever been demanded unless it could be accomplished with complete safety to oneself and to others, those others being those within the defendant's mantle of protection, their family, their customers, and a robbery of the store that they owned, something of that nature. We've got, what, about 100 people in here? Let me ask you a question that I've been asking my students for many years. Can any of you think of a situation where you would shoot a human being to death if you could have simply walked away and retreated in complete safety to oneself and others without trying to outrun a bullet, without trying to turn your back on a drawn knife, without trying to walk backward faster than another human being can walk forward? I see no hands. Don't feel bad. No one else has ever been able to answer that question for me either. It's not a change in how things are done. We're allowed in this country to use lethal force to defend ourselves, our families, our loved ones. When we're in situations of immediate, otherwise unavoidable danger of death or great bodily harm to ourselves or to others within that mantle of our protection. Historically, it's been a three-pronged test to determine whether that situation existed. And different jurisdictions, different police academies, different training schools will use different terminology. But basically, the three factors are most commonly known as ability, opportunity, and jeopardy. Ability means your opponent has the power to exert deadly force, that is, to inflict a fatal injury or a, a crippling injury. Often that will take the form of a per se weapon, the, the knife, the club, the pistol. It can also take the, the form of disparity of force. Disparity of force is a category of situations where the unarmed attacker has such a physical advantage that he's so likely to kill or cripple the, the armed person that that advantage becomes the equivalent of a deadly weapon and allows his intended victim to respond with deadly force. 
Uh, we can see examples in this room. Anyone in here with a physical handicap, attacked by an able-bodied person, is facing disparity of force, and in a true violent attack, is authorized to use a deadly weapon in self-defense. As a general rule, the female attacked by the male, because society recognizes males tend to be larger, have greater upper body strength, and have been accultured to be more aggressive. The, uh, we spoke of the physical handicap. That can also be a handicap that occurs in the course of the fight. You're an able-bodied man in prime of life, but in the course of the fight, the other man has been able to break your kneecap. Now you can't move away from him, now you can't fight back at, on an equal force level. At this point, we've reached deadly force level for you to respond with. It could be something as simple as position of advantage. The two of you are exactly the same height, weight, physical skill. But the other man manages to get you down, and he's banging your head against a rock. Or the other man gets you down, and he's stomping you. Uh, a kick that before might have broken a rib, when you're down on the ground, now becomes lethal force, because if you've ever read in certain law books that uh, are laws of states that a shod foot is a deadly weapon, doesn't mean a guy kicking you in the butt. It means if you're down and being stomped. Uh, if, if my colleague on the left throws a punch at me here, I can slip the punch, I can roll with a punch, but if he gets me down, I can't do either of those things. And now my head here is caught between the underlying ground and the crushing force of his whole body weight. And in that situation, his position of advantage becomes the same as a deadly weapon and would authorize me to draw my gun or knife in self-defense. Force of numbers is an extremely uh, common example of disparity of force. The single individual attacked by two people, three people, four. So that would be the ability element. The opportunity element means capable of immediately employing that power. If someone up there in the back row was threatening to stab me, I'd certainly be concerned about it, but he has a great distance to travel, he has to get past several rows of, of seats, and he has to get past several people who at least one of whom I hope would stop him from stabbing the poor little old man. <laughs> but if instead he's up here with us, nothing in between us, the tests have shown since the pioneering work of Dennis Tuller in 1981, excuse me, 83, the average adult male from a standing start can close a distance of more than 20 feet and stab their victim in an average time of 1.5 seconds. So in that situation, the opportunity factor would be in. And finally, the third element, jeopardy. Jeopardy means his words and or actions manifest an intent to cause death or great bodily harm as it would be interpreted by any reasonable and prudent person such as yourself. When those three things come together, deadly force is warranted in self-defense. It happens very frequently in this country. The stand your ground laws were promoted by the people who recognize that and by the people who have seen the, the ironic tragedy of someone who defends themselves, defends their family, preserves themselves from a, a murderous attack to come home to their loved ones, suddenly having to go through the ordeal, both criminal and civil, of being painted as, as the murderer, as the reckless slaughterer of men. Uh, let me close briefly because I don't want to take too much time here. We're not talking ancient history. 
We're talking things that have happened recently. Case in point, in West Des Moines, Iowa, October 29th of last year, a man named Jay Lewis, middle-aged guy, federal employee, works in an office, clean criminal record, so clean he has a, a license to carry a concealed handgun in public, is attacked on the street by two men of another color. They decide it would be an excellent idea to physically assault him. He draws his gun. He orders them vehemently to stay back. They lunge. Disparity of forces in play, he fires. One man is shot across the pectoral muscle into the bicep and wounded, and the two of them decide, you know what? It's not fun being two coyotes on a bunny when the bunny shoots back. We're leaving now. Does anybody have a problem with that act of self-defense? Jay Lewis, the man who fired, was African-American. His two attackers, including the one who was wounded, was Caucasian. The, the topic of race as it affect, affects criminal justice in America is the topic for another day, at least for me. Jay Lewis was arrested. Jay Lewis was held on a six-figure bond but on an ordinary working man's salary he could not afford. He stayed there rotting in jail. Meanwhile, the folks who owned the apartment building where he lived served a notice that said, ooh, we understand you've just been arrested for shooting someone. You are altogether too scary and dangerous to live among us. Consider yourself evicted. And they mailed it to him at his apartment address and posted it on his door at his apartment when they knew or should have known that he was in jail and could not receive them. And when he did not respond to that after the 30 days or whatever, they cleaned out his apartment, put his furniture, his clothing, his computers, including a novel he was writing, out on the front lawn to be stolen by whoever came by, and of course they all were. And after 112 days in jail, Prosecution dropped the majority of charges, took him to, to trial on the rest. And the jury said collectively, are you kidding us? And rendered the acquittal. Does that mean the system works? To an extent it does. The man was literally homeless. Damn near penniless. That's not the way justice should work. It was to prevent things like that that political activists, civil rights activists, when I consider, we, we have many levels of civil rights activists in here. Uh, those who fight for gun owners' rights, I consider to be civil rights activists as well. Uh, I remember that uh, Charlton Heston, former president of the NRA, marched with Martin Luther King, who was also a gun owner. But their efforts have given us the stand your ground laws in many states. They are moving now to put that law in place in the state of Iowa to prevent the kind of injustice that Jay Lewis suffered from being suffered by any of their citizens there. And for that reason, this speaker supports the concept. Thank you. For anyone interested in learning more about uh, Mr. Ayub's training programs, you can find more information at his website, which is MossadAyubGroup.com. 
Okay, we're now going to have the benefit of hearing another perspective on these uh, standard ground laws. Um, our third speaker, uh, Stephen Jansen, is the Chief Operating Officer for the Association of Prosecuting Attorneys. The association conducts training and provides technical assistance to improve the prosecutorial function. Prior to joining the association, Mr. Jansen served as the director of the National Center for Community Prosecution at the National District Attorneys Association. And in that capacity, he coordinated training programs to prosecutors not only across the United States, but in other countries as well, in Latin America and countries in Africa. Mr. Jansen began his career as a prosecutor in Michigan, where he specialized in bringing cases against gang members in Detroit. He came to our attention because he co-authored a report on the Castle Doctrine and the Standard Ground Law, so he's very knowledgeable on the subject. Please welcome Stephen Jansen. Good afternoon. Uh, taking a look back at uh, our historical English common law, uh, the reason why they established uh, a right to self-defense, but you, you had to retreat unless facing imminent death or great bodily harm, was that they wanted to ensure that this right of defense was not mistaken and used as a right to kill. If, if you look back at English common law with regard to the Castle Doctrine, that's the one situation where this did not apply. You do not have or never had a duty to retreat from one's own home. That was your sanctuary, and you had a right to meet force or a forcible entry with deadly force or reasonable force. So let's take a look at what our rights were and what the laws were prior to 2005. And, and here in the United States, we established a, a right to self-defense, and that would have been a right to self-defense even outside of the home and also inside of the home. We see this because we have justifiable homicides, excusable homicides within our criminal justice system. Um, even recognizing, though, if, if you look back in the history of American uh, jurisprudence and American history with regards to the restriction of firearms, there were exceptions for people that were traveling. So there was a recognition by our government and states that people needed a right to, and an ability to defend themselves well outside of their home. We also had established the right to the castle doctrine. So here, it was the law. If there was a forcible felony or somebody was breaking into your dwelling, you had a right to use deadly force. I, I believe that this was a misconception with a lot of the legislation that was passed. There was uh, a, a number of interviewees and supporters and proponents of this legislation that said people should have a right to defend themselves within their own home. They always had that right. And then, uh, as our last speaker mentioned, uh, our system is based at looking what a reasonable, prudent person would have done. So this objective, reasonable test was what gauges uh, prosecutors and police officers to evaluate whether a use of force was justified or not, if that occurred outside of the home or that occurred within a dwelling. So what was the need for a change and an expansion in this legislation that eventually is called Stand Your Ground? Uh, again, I think as it's been mentioned, the proponents of this legislation said overzealous prosecution, or they said lengthy 
delays in deciding if charges are going to be brought or not. Um, considering that the majority of self-defense claims that occur in the United States actually occur within the home, um, very few occur out in the public. Again, what, is, what was the calling for this change, this expansion to the Castle Doctrine? But I'm going to get back to that a, a little bit later. I'd like to proceed and talk about what seems to be the most troubling, the two most troubling aspects of the Florida legislation. One, this being the presumption of reasonableness, that an individual is in fear to the areas that we've expanded under the castle. This has never been seen before in common law or American jur jurisprudence, this new standard that has been developed. Uh, sometimes leaving only the, the shooter as the one to detail why self-defense or why use of force was necessary in this situation. So we've abandoned the objective test and we've replaced this with a subjective test that the individual claiming stand your ground is presumed to be in reasonable fear of death or great bodily harm in areas that have been expanded under the castle. Not all states that have either expanded their castle doctrine or have expanded the stand your ground laws have chose to adopt this segment or this section of the statute. Colorado, for example, did grant immunity to criminal prosecution and civil actions, but does not adopt this reasonableness of fear standard that you see in the Florida legislation that was adopted in 2005. It creates problems with regards to investigations of crime. And I think that the, the best example that I can provide to you is what was done prior to 2005. So if there was a, a violent act that occurred or a use of force that occurred, law enforcement would go in there with few limitations on their investigative tactics. They would review the case. If they could establish that a violent act had occurred, then it is the accused to assert affirmative defense, that the reason, the, the reason that they had to use force or deadly force was necessary because of a self-defense claim, for example. Now, prior to 2005, when police officers respond to a criminal scene or a scene where use of force or a violent act had occurred, they actually have to go in and look at the case and prove beyond a preponderance of an evidence that an unlawful act had occurred. But unfortunately, because of the presumption in the statute, if we are within the expanded areas of the castle, the officers have to then presume that the actions taken by the accused in this, in this uh, situation or the individual that used force is reasonable and therefore lawful because that person is presumed to have been in fear. No government agency um, then is really reviewing the reasonableness of these actions that are occurring in our public streets and in our homes. This presents a ripe opportunity for criminals to take advantage of this law, to use it as a defensive shield from criminal prosecution. The statutory effect that what it's created here, and excuse me while I just briefly read, with regards to the investigation of unlawful acts and the investigation of lawful acts. So the police are not mandated and shouldn't be investigating lawful acts, 
But if you're classifying a use of force as a lawful act, it hampers that investigation. So with regards to the investigation of unlawful acts, Section 776.032, sub 2, provides that law enforcement agencies may use the standard procedures to investigate the use of force. So law enforcement is prohibited, though, from arresting or detaining or putting in custody anybody that uses deadly force under this expanded castle until they're able to prove by a probable cause that the force that was used was unlawful. Establishing this probable cause, though, by the requirement of 776.32, that statute, is virtually impossible because law enforcement at this point must presume that the use of force was lawful pursuant to Section 776.013. The other troubling section of the Stand Your Ground laws is this grant of immunity from criminal prosecution and civil actions. We don't even grant this type of immunity to the trained men and women that serve and protect us here at home as law enforcement officers and abroad as our military. Neither one of those professions are granted blanket immunity, which this statute has bestowed upon citizens. I would like to argue, you know, how, how many other statutes within Florida, within these states that actually adopt the Stand Your Ground actually have on the books granting such immunity in both areas? Probably very few. Um, I, I don't know of many. The problem and the reason why is because most of those statutes that grant blanket immunity like that are unconstitutional. It becomes unconstitutional when you actually couple that presumption of reasonableness of fear with the grant of immunity. You now create a statutory presumption that cannot be questioned or provide any proof offered against it. So the rationale with those, that connection, that presumption and that grant of immunity can never truly be questioned, which has been declared unconstitutional under Tot v. the United States back in, I believe, 1940s, 43, maybe. Also with regards to this grant of immunity, we now have police officers out there struggling, trying to decide when does this immunity kick in? When is it claimed and when should it be granted? Is it a formal hearing? Is it the prosecutor? Is it the court? Or is it the individual officer out on the street that are making some of these determinations? <clears throat> Unfortunately, with this uh, potential grant of immunity, you know, sometimes based on an investigation, a police officer could be out there making an assessment. They don't detain, they don't make an arrest. Maybe in some situations they're not even forwarding that material onto the prosecutor's office, so therefore there's no review. If that was the case, then wouldn't the immunity be granted there? I think the courts shy away from having an officer use their individual assessment in determining some of those legal facts. We see a number of abuses in courts fear because of either bias or people incriminating themselves, putting safeguards up within our criminal justice system. And case law favors more having the police officer use some uniform decision-making process as they go through and putting cases into the criminal justice system, making arrests or forwarding information onto the prosecutor's office. Then you have the situation that 
a case the information could be passed on to the prosecutor's office the prosecutor's office now must decide as they're reviewing the case taking a look at the elements of a possible crime or now a claim of immunity do we then charge on this case or do we grant immunity if it's truly immunity the case should not proceed but we do see offices that look at the use of force determine that it's unlawful and they proceed with criminal charges now we move to the situation where the court must take a look at the grant of immunity or not. The court, it, it, it seems like very vague language in the statute, so there's really no guidance of when this should be evoked, uh, who should be granting this, what type of hearing. So the appellate court is sort of all over the map with this. The uh, court systems, though, in Florida have worked out hearings, of evidentiary hearings that are, are um, preliminary hearings uh, that actually determine the grant of immunity. So you have the accused now standing before the court, possible criminal charges on the other side, trying to invoke a grant of immunity. They must, uh, by a preponderance of the evidence, determine that the grant of immunity is applicable to their case and that they are correctly claiming stand your ground. So. The, the problem occurs when the courts start making inconsistent rulings on the same or similar facts. You have case law that's starting to develop in Florida that contradicts itself at the appellate level, at the trial level. You have judges that hear a case um, on the possible grant of immunity, and I'll use one case uh, in Florida as an example. There was a case involving road rage. The two gentlemen pulled their cars over. After a confrontation ensued, they were going back to their cars. One of the gentlemen picked up an ice pick. And probably depending on you know, who, who you listen to and what facts you listen to, um, one of the gentlemen was actually stabbed in the head and killed with the ice pick. The individual that died was a younger man. The other, uh, um, uh, an elderly man, I believe in his, in his 70s or so, or, or maybe a little bit younger than that. That case did not get prosecuted. The judge at that point granted that individual immunity under the stand your ground. That case uh, was resolved late 2011. The problem when you get a ruling like that, you have police officers that probably made an arrest because Two individuals were leaving, retreating to their own cars. You have another individual come back and then engage the situation, and you have somebody that ends up being killed. Police officers hear later on that case that we brought through, the judge dismissed on grounds of immunity. It's a stand your ground case. So it creates some confusion within law enforcement. Could you only imagine if you had case similar to that fact, or you potentially go out to a crime scene months later to try to make the determination if you should now arrest somebody or potentially bring them in because you think the case law is changed or the judge now is granting immunity when your case fit in either a less violent standard or similar standards um, and, and, and fact pattern there. I think this is part of the struggle with the stand your ground laws because of uh, the appellate courts being all over the map. Uh, some of the judges are trying to push through cases that they believe um, are being protected under this law, but are actually 
criminal and violent acts. So that means the court then is now treating this grant of immunity as an affirmative defense, which truly the statute, understand your ground, says it's not. It should be a true grant of immunity. If it was an affirmative defense, there would have been no reason for that grant or that escalation to a presumption of reasonableness of fear because we already had self-defense on the books as an affirmative defense. So the statute's very clear. It should be a grant of true immunity. It's not being applied in the criminal justice system as such because judges are trying to do the right thing. Also, um, if it was a grant of true immunity, they sh citizens and those invoking it should not face prosecution. And in this case, as the example that I've given you before, uh, by actually forcing defendants to come to a hearing and being charged, they are truly facing prosecution anyway in, in those situations. A couple other issues and, and, and problems that I see in the statute is the, the term there, unlawful activity. The statute talks that if you are engaged in unlawful activity, you cannot invoke the immunity or the stand your ground. The problem is the term's vague. Does unlawful activity mean if I don't have a, my driver's license or I'm driving a car in Florida on a suspended license, I am engaged in unlawful activity in the state of Florida? But am I any less than protected understand your ground than the driver next to me. If there was a situation that arose and there was a threat in a parking lot, say, as we pulled up, would I have a right to the same self-defense as the individual maybe that was not driving on a suspended license? You have the situation that a felon may not possess a firearm, but we've seen a court case already proceed through Florida where a person was charged with a felony firearm a felon in possession of a firearm, and the uh, actual killing that occurred. The judge dismissed the case and threw the entire thing out because he said the stand your ground was applicable and there was immunity in that situation. The felony firearm, or the felon in possession charge happened, I guess, also be thrown out. You have a different situation where you have a homeowner who had a sawed off shotgun in his house an intruder entered the house, he used a sawed-off shotgun, killed the intruder. He was charged with possession of a sawed-off shotgun, which is illegal in the state of Florida, and he was also charged with the potential homicide. The case went to the stand-your-ground hearing, the judge threw it out, but he threw out only the murder charges. He did tell the prosecution that they could proceed on the charge of him possessing a sawed-off shotgun because that was a criminal charge. So you have this unapplicable and unbalanced uh, approach to, um, to how these laws are being applied with the different judges in the, in the circuit courts and in the trial courts with Florida. You also have this term, had occurred, uh, a felony had occurred. So does this mean if someone was breaking into my house and they left, and, and, and I, I witnessed this later, they were fleeing, do I have a right to shoot them in the back? Or does my neighbor have a right to shoot them in the back? We see as a national case, an example in Texas, where a neighbor did shoot two people that were fleeing after they had broken into the, the, the residence next door. That individual, that neighbor, technically was not in any reasonable danger, 
and the other house was unoccupied, which he knew at the time. He was watching it for his neighbor. So has this only promoted band, uh, vigilanteism, or has this promoted you know, a right to self-defense? I think today what we're seeing is that the legislation is being reviewed. You have a number of task forces now that are out there taking a look. Should we revise this legislation? Should we repeal it? Should we do nothing with it? I think this research and this analysis that's taken place should have taken place in 2005 or 2004 before the legislation was passed. Potentially, maybe you could have looked at some of the unattended consequences that are occurring or some of the ambiguities and the, unlawful, uh, the other um, vague words in the bills, in the statute. You see prosecutorial discretion and possibly criminal abuse that is always drawn in and uh, discussed with regards to this, but still we haven't resolved the worries of the supporters and proponents of this legislation back in 2005. We haven't really resolved the issue of a zealous prosecutor because prosecutors are still obviously reviewing some of this for reasonableness and proceeding maybe in violation of the statute, maybe judges in violation of the statute. And we haven't really stopped the length in time which a person may or may not face criminal prosecution. As you can see in, in the case, um, the Trayvon Martin shooting, it took months to even come to a resolution that there were going to be charges. With regards to the example of the 70-year-old man who had to wait months before the prosecutors decided not to charge, that individual wasn't incurring any charges for a criminal prosecution. There was a proper review that needed to be done. And you have to let our criminal justice system work the way it's set up. I guess in closing, um, you know, the signers of our declaration said that we have some inalienable rights, that being life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That most fundamental right itself, life. Um, they, these stand your ground laws, unfortunately, turn away from that. They've created a, a license to kill and therefore fundamentally flawed. And I just urge states and legislatures to take a look at the legislation, at least revise or take a look at terms that are vague and provide some guidance to law enforcement, prosecutors, and the court system as we move forward.